Good morning. Welcome. It is great to be with you this morning. Now, you may have just heard reference by Micah in the prayer, Camping with Tom. And at the beginning of the service, you may have heard reference to Camping with Tom that the students went on this past weekend. I'm that Tom. Uh, I'm the one that went camping with them. And it's, it's kind of more funny than you think because I don't really like camping. Uh, I don't like sand between my toes. Uh, I don't like dirty bathrooms and I really don't like bugs. Uh, but what I do like is I love hanging out with the students. And we had a great time this past weekend getting to know each other better, spending time talking about the Lord, enjoying his creation. It was just an awesome time. And for those of you parents uh, who had students that went on the trip, for those of you students that are sitting down there, uh, I want you to know uh, you have some great children. Uh, it was, they were awesome, they're awesome people. So it was a great time. So now if you would, would you take your Bibles and open up your Bibles to Malachi chapter two, Malachi chapter two. Last week we were reminded by Jim that we are now priests in God's kingdom. And true priests in God's kingdom take God seriously. In fact, one of the themes of the book of Malachi is the greatness of God. And if God is great, then it follows that we should take him seriously. That we should take what he thinks seriously. That we should take his instruction to us seriously. And as we continue in Malachi chapter two, we see that God turns his focus to marriage and divorce. And we're going to see from Malachi chapter two that God takes marriage and divorce very seriously. And so that means we, as followers of Jesus, we as Christians should take marriage and divorce seriously as well. So let's see this morning what God has to say to us through the prophet Malachi. But before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge that this is a difficult topic. For some, it's a very uncomfortable topic. For me, personally, it's a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit of a difficult topic. We come to this and there's many people who have experienced the difficulty and the pain and the hurt of divorce. Many of you have experienced a divorce. Some of you are in a difficult marriage right now. Many of you have parents who have divorced or parents who are in a difficult marriage. And maybe when you read the title to this sermon, you started to feel those butterflies in your stomach. You maybe even started to feel sick. Maybe as I've been talking, you wanted to leave or turn off your device. This can be a painful difficult topic because there's a lot of pain and a lot of hurt that is associated with some marriages and with divorce. But I want to encourage you this morning. The passage that we're going to look at is not primarily about judgment. It's not about God's anger over past mistakes and believe me, I do not want to add any guilt or judgment to the pain of divorce. I want to remind you 
that not only is one of the themes of the book of Malachi the greatness of God, the other theme of the book of Malachi, it's how Malachi begins this book in chapter one, verse two. God says to you, he says to me, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. It's one of the main themes of this book of Malachi. And so God, because of his love for us, takes marriage and divorce seriously. Because of his love for us, God sets high standards of holiness for his children. Sin causes hurt and pain and damage. And God in his love for us sets out truths for us to shield us from that pain. You see, God's way is always better. So if you're listening to me and you've experienced a divorce, you've been through a divorce, I want you to know that God loves you. That God is a God of redemption and restoration. And out of his love, he seeks to wrap you in his arms of mercy and grace. So if you're experiencing the pain and the hurt of divorce, my encouragement right here at the beginning is go to him and allow him to shower you with his mercy and his grace. But God also has some truths that he wants to share with us this morning. So we are going to open his word and we are going to see what he has to say to us in and through his word this morning. Malachi chapter two. We're gonna be primarily focusing on verses 10 through 16 of Malachi two. And in this text this morning, in these verses this morning, before drawing our attention to marriage, Malachi begins by reminding us of God's greatness and his authority in our lives. Remember, this is one of the main themes of the book of Malachi, God's greatness. And if God is great and he has this authority, that means that he should be the Lord of all of the areas of our lives. So God asks three questions, three rhetorical questions to establish his authority and greatness. And all three questions are found in verse 10. Look at verse 10. First question, do we not all have one father? Answer, yes. Second question, did not one God create us? Again, answer, yes. Third question, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? With these three rhetorical questions, Malachi is reminding us of God's greatness and his authority, his sovereignty, and his control over each one of us. He is our father and he is our creator. And as such, we are part of a covenant community. We should obey him in all things because of who he is, as well as for our own individual benefit and the community's benefit as well. But did you see it? There's a problem here. It's introduced in the last question of verse 10. 
the people were being unfaithful to one another. And Malachi drives home this accusation of the people being unfaithful. He uses the word four more times in these seven verses. In verse 11, verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16. But to be clear, the word unfaithful does not completely, accurately, or sufficiently describe the problem that is happening here. Other Bible translations help us understand this a bit better. The King James Version, you may be looking at that, or the New American Standard Bible, translates the word that we see as unfaithful in the NIV, translates it differently. It's the word bagad. It's the Hebrew word bagad. And here in our NIV, it's translated unfaithful. In other texts, it's translated deal treacherously. Deal treacherously. It means a willful betrayal of confidence, trust, or truth. A willful betrayal of confidence, trust, or truth. You see, one who is treacherous is a traitor, is unreliable and disloyal. So in our text, Malachi then focuses on two specific acts of unfaithfulness, two acts of treachery. First, the people were being unfaithful to God. Look at verse 11. It begins with some really strong words. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed. The word detestable is also translated an abomination in some other translations. Other symbols, synonyms, excuse me, would be uh, atrocity, a disgrace, an outrage. These is a strong term. These are strong words. This term is reserved for the worst of sins, for sexual immorality, for idolatry, for witchcraft. So what is it here that is so revolting to God? The answer is found at the end of verse 11. By marrying women who worship a foreign God. You see, the people of Israel, the men of Israel in particular, were being unfaithful to God because they were marrying unbelievers. They had a covenant with God. And part of the covenant that they had with God was that they were going to be part of God's family. And part of that covenant was that they were not to intermarry. Now remember the context here in Malachi, the people of Israel have returned from captivity in Babylon. And when they return, the men of Israel notice these beautiful Canaanite women that are now in the land as well. And they start to marry those women. The primary problem here is that the men of Israel were marrying women who did not love, follow, and obey the one true God. They were marrying unbelievers. Now to be clear, this is not, hear me please, this is not a racial issue. This is a spiritual issue. They were not prohibited from marrying Gentiles in general. Remember, we have a story, or story earlier in the New Testament from the book of Ruth where Boaz, an Israelite, marries Ruth, a Moabite. 
But Ruth was one who loved, followed, and obeyed the one true God. You see, this is not a racial issue. It's a spiritual issue. You see, the basis of any marriage relationship is spiritual. The foundation that I have in the marriage relationship that I have with my wife is a spiritual foundation. At the core, at the center of our relationship is my relationship with God and her relationship to God. It's the foundation on which our marriage is built. And this foundation creates a unity of purpose, a unity of focus, and a unity of action. Without that foundation, there is no unity to start with in the marriage. You see, it takes three to create a successful marriage. Husband, wife, and Jesus. If you have only two, or if you have four, there is chaos. You see, the men of Israel cannot worship the Lord while his wife is worshiping the God Asherah. You see, there can't be any unity in that. And look what the Apostle Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and of idols? This is very strong language that God is using And the point here is not to be offensive. Sometimes we read this language and we think it's offensive to the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. This is not meant to be offensive to the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. It's just a reality. And God, actually, this is a statement of love and God is acting in love towards both parties. He has the best interest of both parties on his mind. Because when a couple, when a man and a woman do not have the same foundation, the result is going to be distress in the marriage. And that distress is going to happen for the one who's following Jesus as well as the one who does not believe in Jesus. This is not meant to be offensive. It's meant to be a statement of love and care and concern for both parties. Look again at what Paul and how he starts this. Look at what he says. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, it's a little bit of a funny phrase. We may not all get it right at the same time, but the idea of being yoked is is the tying together of two animals under a yoke. And the purpose is, the law comes right from the Mosaic law. And it's the, don't put two animals that don't work well together 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 under a yoke because their gates will be different. And by gate, I mean their walk, the way they walk. So you can't put an ox and a camel together or a camel and a donkey together to pull the load. And the reason you can't is because if you put them under the same yoke, both animals will be in distress. Both animals will be chafed by the yoke that they're carrying on their back because they're different sizes, because their gait is different, because they don't work well together. So God's instruction is clear. Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. And please understand, 
this is a statement of love. This is God demonstrating his concern and his care for both people in the relationship. Now, right now, you may be someone who's dating a non-Christian. You may be thinking about marrying a non-Christian. And right now, you may be rationalizing to yourself and you may be thinking, well, I love him. And love is what really matters. Or she's promised to come to church with me. Or I know that she's going to become a Christian someday. Or what if I break up with him? How is he going to find Jesus? Or maybe you're, you've prayed and you feel like it's God's will that you're together. Here's the thing. It's clear from Malachi chapter 2 and from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that it is never God's will for a believer in Jesus to marry someone who does not believe in Jesus. It's never God's will. And again, I know on some level this sounds harsh, it's not. It's God demonstrating his love, care, and concern for both parties. But there's also a consequence. There's a consequence of making the wrong choice. And it can be bad. Really bad. Look at verse 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Verse 12 tells us that the man or the woman who does this may be asking God to turn his back on them. Now, I do not believe that this means that the person would lose their salvation but it does mean that the person may lose God's blessing and favor and face many harsh trials and difficulties as a result of this choice. Please, please don't risk it. Now let me quickly add two points. First, it is possible that an unbelieving spouse come to faith in Jesus. I have seen it happen, and maybe you have seen it happen as well. So if you are currently married to someone who does not believe in Jesus, and please, I'm stressing again, if you are currently married to someone who does not believe in Jesus, my encouragement to you is to pray. Pray hard that that person will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and also follow the guidelines and prescriptions that Peter lays out in 1 Peter chapter 3. Write it down and go there later. Second, if you're married to a non-Christian, do not try to get out of the relationship. The apostle Paul addresses this very situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's there that he encourages the believer to stay in the relationship, encourages the believer to stay married, to pray vigorously, and to create an environment that makes it easier for God to work and convict the person 
to come towards Jesus. You see, God's plan for marriage is one believing man marrying one believing woman to live their life together till death for God's glory and God's honor. My encouragement to you, stay faithful. Stay faithful to God in this. Now let's look at the second act of unfaithfulness, the second act of treachery. It's found in verses 13 through 16. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong in him in body and in spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Now, after reading this, it's not exactly clear what the specific problem is. But in these words, you should sense that the faulty relationship with your spouse is going to result in a faulty relationship with God. And it works both ways. Your relationship with God determines the relationship you have with your spouse, and your relationship with your spouse affects the relationship that you have with God. Malachi describes this as weeping and wailing at the altar and God does not hear. You see, these were difficult times in Israel. Many of the things around them were falling apart. Does it sound a bit familiar? Like perhaps we know something about what's going on here. So because of the difficulties, because of the trials, because of all the stuff that's happening around them, the people pray to God to change their circumstances, but God does not hear them because there's something wrong with their relationship with their wives. You see, if your relationship is not right with your spouse, it is going to affect the relationship that you have with God. But the specific problem here, the specific problem here is divorce. Now, unfortunately, our NIV translation is not as clear as other translations. Look at verse 16. In your verse 16, if you have an NIV, there is a subscript. That subscript is C or maybe it's a D in some of your versions. That means go to the bottom of the page. And at the bottom of the page, there's an alternate translation. I believe at the bottom of the page of the NIV translation, that translation is actually more accurate. And it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, God takes marriage and divorce very seriously, so seriously that he says that he hates divorce. This means that he detests divorce. He abhors divorce. This is very, very strong language, and it's very clear that God hates divorce. But please notice, Please, please notice that it does not say that he hates divorcees. There is a big difference here. 
Statistically speaking, there are some of you who are listening to me who have experienced a divorce. Many of you are victims of divorce. Some of you are still feeling the hurt and the pain from a divorce. Whatever the circumstances that you're in right now, whatever the circumstances of your divorce, whatever the circumstances of your divorce, God does not hate you. God loves you. God loves you and he is a God who offers you hope and who will demonstrate his mercy and his grace to you. And God has plans for you. He has purpose for you. But he does hate divorce. Look at the phrase at the end of verse 16. It says, one who divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. If you look at the bottom of the page again, it says, cover his garment. Cover his garment with violence. Now, this is an interesting symbol. In a Hebrew marriage ceremony, the man would take his cloak, he would take a long garment, and he would cover his wife with the garment. He would cover his wife to symbolize this protection over his wife. But here, what Malachi is saying is that when you divorce your wife, you are covering her with a filthy, dirty garment of violence. You are actually covering her with a garment of hardness. It's another way that this could be translated. You're being unfaithful to your spouse. You're dealing treacherously with your spouse. Now it's interesting. It's interesting how Jesus elaborates on this in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, some people come to Jesus and they ask him, hey, you talk so strongly about divorce. Why did Moses... Why did Moses allow for divorce? And Jesus' response is that Moses allowed for divorce because of the hardness of your heart and God never intended it that way. You see, divorce acknowledges or it's an admission that at least one person in the relationship, at least one person in the relationship has a hard heart and will not listen to God. Now, just for clarity, God does not forbid all divorce. There are essentially two situations where God allows for divorce. One is where an unbelieving spouse chooses to leave. We call it abandonment, where an unbelieving spouse chooses to leave the believing spouse. The believing spouse can let the other go. This is identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The second reason or allowable reason for divorce is because adultery. The person in the marriage who did not commit the adultery is allowed to divorce the other, does not have to stay in the marriage. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter five. However, having said that, God's heart is always, always for reconciliation and restoration of the marriage. See, God hates divorce. But you see, we need to remember, we need to remember that in Jesus, restoration and redemption is always possible. 
that God desires husband and wife to live together for life. And no matter the hurt, no matter the pain, no matter the distance, God desires reconciliation and restoration and fullness out of a marriage. And if both parties are willing to turn to Jesus and open up their hearts and follow godly principles, marriages can be restored and made whole. So now in closing, I'd like to focus on four of those godly principles. There are four godly principles found in our text this morning. Now, there are many other godly principles for marriage that are found in the Bible, but there are particularly four in our text. I'd like you to look at a phrase in verse 15 and verse 16. You see the phrase, be on our guard? That's the encouragement. The encouragement to those of us who are married is be on your guard. It means to protect by attending to. Protect your marriage by attending to these four principles. So first principle. The first principle is to look at your wife or as your husband as the spouse of your youth. Look at your wife or your husband as the spouse of your youth. It's in verses 14 and 15. It's mentioned twice. Malachi there refers to the wife of your youth. My wife is the wife of my youth. And that doesn't really need much more definition. You kind of get the concept intuitively. Malachi is saying that I should treat my wife the way I treated her when we were young, the way I treated her when we were first married. Now think about how you treated your spouse when you were first married. You did the laundry, you, you, you bought flowers, you told her you loved her all the time, you did backflips when they came home from work, and now time has passed, you no longer do the laundry, Flowers cost too much. You told her you loved her two months ago and that was clearly sufficient enough. And now you stay at work too long. My friend, wake up. Husband, wake up. This is the wife of your youth. Wife, wake up. This is the husband of your youth. Think about the time you have invested, the energy you have invested in each other, and go back and look at this person with the eyes that you looked at them when you were young, when you were first married. First principle, look at your spouse as the spouse of your youth. The second principle to protect the marriage, it's in verse 14. See, just mentioned briefly, treat her as your partner. Your wife is your partner. Other translations, your translation may say companion. Both of the words work. A partner is one that you are joined to. You are joined to your partner. You are joined to your companion. Your partner or your companion is your friend. And over and over again, all throughout the New Testament, your wife, wives are referred to as your friend. And women who are not your wife are referred to as strangers. You see, there should be a very, 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 I could say very multiple times, a very distinct difference in how you treat your wife and how you treat other women. 
wives, there should be a very distinct difference in how you treat your husband and how you treat other men, a distinct difference. In fact, outside of work and outside of women friends you may have through your marriage, if you are married, other women should be strangers to you. This goes for wives as well. Outside of work, outside of friends that you may have with your husband, other men should be strangers to you. My recommendation, it's my recommendation, not the Lord, but I. My recommendation, don't have any women friends outside of work or outside of your marriage. I know that that sounds extreme, but I don't have any reason to go to coffee with a woman at 7.30 at night. I don't have any reason outside of work or outside of a marriage, outside of a friendship that I have with my wife, with another woman and couple, or just with another woman. I don't have any reason to do that. The problem, think about how it makes your wife feel or the reverse, think about how it makes your husband feel. There's really nothing good that comes of it. Just my recommendation not the Lord, but I. Your wife is your friend. Your husband is your companion. Foster and cultivate that friendship. Third principle, when we talk about the wife of our youth or the companion, we're kind of speaking more in terms of love, but there are times in the relationship where love wanes, where the emotion of love is not felt so strongly. So verse 14 recognizes that she is the wife of your marriage covenant. He is the husband of your marriage covenant. When you look at your spouse as your partner, you need to recognize that you made a covenant, you made a promise, you made an agreement, you made a contract with her, or you made a promise, you made a covenant, you made an agreement with him. But it's not only a promise, it's not only a covenant that you made with each other, it's a covenant that you made with God for your relationship. You said something like, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. And now when the times get more difficult, you can't say, well, I didn't think it was going to be this bad. You made a promise to her or you made a promise to him. But both of you made a covenant. You made a promise with God. Now, sometimes in your relationship, the only thing that will keep you together is that promise. And for a period of time, that's okay. Because you covenanted, you promised God that you were going to stay together for life. So the principles, look at her or him as the spouse of your youth. Recognize that they are your partner or companion. Recognize that you are in a covenant marriage. And then the fourth and final principle is found in verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him and body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. The fourth principle that guards the marriage is that God has given you your spouse to produce godly offspring. Do not waste the gift. God's intention is that one married, believing, one believing man be married to one believing woman with the intention of producing godly offspring. Now, even in the best of Christian homes, that does not mean that every child is going to turn out to love God and follow Jesus. Jesus. 
Children are able to make their own choice. But it is much more likely that a child grows to follow Jesus when they see Jesus in their parents' lives. It is a privilege, it is a blessing to be raised in a home where both parents love Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, and as a result, unite together to raise their children to love God. And ultimately, that's what every parent wants. I, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, I don't care so much about my children's financial success. I don't care so much about their intellectual success. I don't really care so much about their worldly success. What I care about most of anything is that my children grow up to follow Jesus. And right here, the thing that I can do, one of the best things that I can do to make that happen is to love their mother. Don't miss the gift. Protect your marriage because it will positively impact your children. You see, there are principles from marriage that guide us. There are principles, godly principles. Look at your wife. Look at your husband as the spouse of your youth. Foster and cultivate the partnership that you have with her or with him. Recognize that your companions Realize and understand that you have a covenant relationship that you not only promised each other, but you promised God that you are going to stay together for life and then finally recognize, recognize that God has put you together for purpose. And one of those purposes is to produce godly offspring. And one of the best ways to do that is to love that spouse with all of your heart. You see, God is proclaiming his greatness through the book of Malachi. He is proclaiming his greatness and he is proclaiming his love for you and his love for me. And what we've learned this morning is that our attitude toward God is revealed by who we choose to marry and by whether we stay married for life. So the final question is what is your attitude towards God? How do you truly view God? Do you view him as great and worthy of all praise and honor and worthy of all of your allegiance? And at the same time, do you view him as the God who loves and cares for you and wants the best for you. And when you bring those two things together, you realize that God's way is always better. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.